Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. I think if you're going to go out and try to sell someone else's product, perhaps there's money maybe either you can do that also, but you have to remember you're always going to be beholden to the person who's making that product. They might decide not to make it for you or sell it to you anymore or what have you. Whereas with injection molding, I'm starting out with pretty much the rawest of raw materials and plastic pellets. And from that point on, I can make anything I want depending on the tonnage of my machines and the complexity of the mold. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on the show today is Rick Wheeler, owner of O'Malley Manufacturing in St. Petersburg, Florida, a company originally founded in 1910. A few of O'Malley's main products include hair snares, lint snares, and bait buckets, all made with robotic injection molding. Rick prefers to manufacture with injection molding because it allows him to produce his products in-house and sell them at competitive prices to those coming from overseas. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire-damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. After FireTrace stops a fire, its system quickly rearms and you can have your machine back up and running in as little as 45 minutes. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash S-W-A-R-F-C-A-S-T. I'm very happy to have Rick Wheeler, owner of O'Malley Manufacturing in St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you, Noah. We came into contact with Rick at Graf Pinkert oh, about two weeks ago. He wrote to us uh, because he had a 1974... Davenport yep. that he he's ready to sell. What was interesting was in the email, he included the original invoice from Davenport. It was what? Uh, $10,800. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember we said, we said to him, wow, you were the first person to actually include an original invoice from a machine that old. So then I called him up with uh, with my dad, Lloyd, and we we started talking and we said, oh, wow, it sounds like you your company and you have quite a story. So here we are. So first, I just want to learn a little bit about O'Malley Manufacturing. When was it started? Uh, it started in 1910. And the original name was Edward O'Malley Valve Company. I think they actually had it, Edward O'Malley, and there's a bear, B-A-R-E, involved. But that got uh, delineated, I don't know when, or deleted in the 30s or so. But it's, it was originally Edward O'Malley Valve Company in 1910. Okay. And uh, it came in our families in the late 40s, uh, in the Wheeler family. 
uh, through my great aunt. So my father's father's sister married a fellow. His name was Tom Reed. Uh, he owned O'Malley, and he died shortly after they got married, about a year or two later of a heart attack or something terrible happened. So she didn't know how to run it. And so my grandfather, my father's father, started running it. And then my father uh, ran it, started in 1961 or so. He was in the Coast Guard for three years, stayed for 17 years in reserves. And then uh, I did my thing, went to school, flew from the Navy for six and a half years. And uh, in 1991, I started here uh, after I got out of the Navy. And it was a tough decision yeah. whether or not to stay in the Navy or get out. I had a lot of fun there. And uh, I tell people in a parallel world, I could have easily just stayed in the Navy and uh, completed a 20-year, 25-year career there. What made me get in was um, my father was the only one running it. It's always been a small company, and I just felt that uh, if I didn't come here, uh, perhaps the business might go out of business or he'd sell it or what have you, and uh, I just wanted to continue on. Had you worked there, you know, when you were growing up? Uh, no, not. I mean, you know, of course, during the summer, I would do odd jobs uh, during college, um, we made a plastic device called the hair snare. We never made it in the shop until 2009. That was well after I was here, of course. We've always had a contract molder, but a lot of times I work at the contract molders, uh, working hair snares, pulling parts out of molds. Um, but so far as working at the factory, I never did spend a lot of time working here on the machines or what have you. So you went into the family business. When was that? And that would be beginning in 1991. 1991. Okay. Right. And I was 30 years old then. 30 years old. And mm -hmm. you guys, you have a whole list of products you make. Right. What were you making back then? Well, the, the primary product that O'Malley made was the faucet and valve reseeder kits. They actually, they actually, back in the day in Chicago, we moved here from Chicago in 69. Uh, the company was always in Chicago on Halstead Street. Uh, what was it? 11942 or something, Halstead Street. And like you'd still find that building on Google Earth. I've seen it there, and I re vaguely remember it because I was nine years on move. I remember the facade and the front of the building and all that. Interesting. In any case, uh, we made they actually cast valves back in the day, and then for about twenty years, all we made was faucet reseeder kits. We call them drip stoppers. That was our trade name for it, drip stoppers, and that required screw machines to do it. And what we had using was um, single spindle Brown and Sharps. Mm -hmm. That would make the cutters and the stems. And the cutter is that they come in four sizes. Well, we made all different sizes. We even made up to, I think, an inch and five sixteenths. But the typical sizes is half inch, nine sixteenths, five eighths, and three quarters. And uh, they're about oh, a half inch long in the respective diameters. They would be ground. I mean, they made flat on the machines with a blind um, threaded hole in the back so the stem could screw in. And then we had a, a custom-made cutter machines that were made in the 30s by what I understand was a German engineer who used to work for the factory. It was like a broaching machine, I guess you could say, where it would come in and cut the cutter. So the cutter was a round circular file. You would cut the face of that cutter and make it sharp like a file. And that would be sent out to be hardened. And that would consist of the faucet reseeder kit. Tell me some of the products you guys make and, and how you make them. What do you normally, what kind of equipment do you use? Okay, so we... You've been through the drip stoppers and the brown and sharps, and in 1974, that's when we one of the screw machine men who worked at our plant told my father, says, look, this single spindle's not cutting it. You really need to get a five-spindle Davenport. I know how to work them. I used to work in Rochester and for Kodak. He was an old Kodak guy, and uh, so he used to use those machines. So he, my father said, yeah, sounds good to me, and that's how we bought that machine. We were making those until we I stopped making them, which is about a year or so ago. 
1969, we invented a plastic product. Uh, actually, it was an invention was brought to us from someone who tried to sell it. We bought the patent on it or paid royalties on the patent. It was called a hair snare. Good name. It's a round circular device, about five inches in diameter with the screen, and that's injection molded. We've been making that since 69. And what does a hair snare do? A hair snare, is what it is, is it, it goes over your sink. Typically, it's designed for the bathroom sink, and it has a raised screen on it. So that raised screen has two advantages. It gives the product more surface area for the water to drain through and also allows the pop-up drain to pop up and down underneath the raised screen. And that was the unique portion of it that allowed that item to be patented. So it, it catches the hair? Correct. You just okay. put it in the sink, it'll catch hair. Uh, we used to advertise it for catching contact lenses. You know, if you're washing your, you're taking your contact lens out of the sink, you could prevent it from going down the drain and what have you, even jewelry, things like that. So, so how did that happen? A guy like had come up with this? Actually a lady. A lady, okay, the lady so, so how'd she find you? What she did is, um, so this is back before my time, but as my father told me, she said she went to all larger companies like Brasscraft, uh, who's mowing, they're not Brasscraft, they're mowing now, you know, people like that, a lot of the big plumbing suppliers, and they just didn't want to do it for one reason or another, but a couple of them mentioned my father because We've been going to the trade shows. We've been going to the National Hardware Show since 1949, since I think that was the first one, 48 or 49. We were the longest continuous exhibitors for quite a while there. And uh, we did stop going to that show about 15 years ago. It wasn't really producing for us after a while. But we knew from that we've been going to the Houseware Show since 1967. So a lot of the guys knew my father from that. And they said, why don't you go see a guy in St. Pete named Rick Wheeler and see what he does? And my father saw that and thought that'd be interesting because there was somebody down the street who was an injection molder. And uh, he was a, a Russian guy who made his own molds. I'm going to have he had his own shop. And so they actually made the mold there in the shop, designed it in prototypes and got it patented and started off. And it was a big hit. Interesting. It's just it sold quite well. Yeah, it always has been. And and you sell it retail or do you sell it to a- all, all different ways? Uh, retail, bulk, private label, our label, the, the whole gamut. Okay. And now, um, you know, I was looking on your website, you have the lint snare, the, the lint snare, yep. bait buckets, drip yep. stoppers. Lint snare is basically to stop lint from going down the drain? Yeah, the, the lint snare was the next item that was big for us uh, that was introduced by us in about 1985. Now, at that time, it wasn't a new product. There was other manufacturers of it, but we had a salesman who worked for us in Chicago and uh, he would sell items for us to various stores and what have you. And he was just keen on that lint snare. And he came to my father and said, look, you need to make this lint snare. And my father says, you saw it. He says, I'm not in the knitting business. We don't knit things here. He goes, the salesman says, I don't care, Rick. Find a way to make it. It's going to do well for you. So we researched it. And what we did is uh, bought um, some knitting machines. Uh, they're like a, a specialized machine that makes a circular tube, I guess you could say, about a couple inches in diameter of either fabric or aluminum or whatever material I put in there. We eventually bought up to six of those machines and we were running two shifts on them at times. Uh, we process it all here. We make large rolls of this fabric. We design special machines to cut it, staple it and seal it and roll it up at the same time. And uh, so that device, what it is, is if you have a wash machine that drains into a laundry tub, in your basement, which is the common place in a lot of northern houses and what have you, not into a standby in the laundry tub. What people will do is they'll put a nylon stocking or some filter over that drain hose from the washing machine because the lint typically can clog up the drain 
in those small drain holes in the laundry tubs. So this is just a filter that goes over that drain holes in your washing machine and catches most of the lint before it has a chance to uh, clog up that drain. Interesting. One other thing about the lint too is it's also good to use if you have a septic system because the lint never goes away. It doesn't decompose. And eventually a lot of the lint will make its way out to the drain field. And what happens there is it'll start clogging up the drain field holes. So you want to kick that lint out of your um, septic system if you have a septic too. Wow. Small, but yeah. you know, so useful. And so this is another product that somebody just came to you with. They, yes. They yep. knew you were making the hair snare and said, hey, this could work for you. Or how did that work? I mean, we've always been kind of focused, I guess you could say, on the plumbing lines. So it's, it's just seemed to fit in our category. Mm-hmm. I think that's how my father determined it. And it worked well. So we um, packaged it different ways. We blister package. Uh, polybag was popular. We had polybaggers. We still have them. Uh, we have a, blister, a four-station alloy blister machine that we use to uh, package the product. For all these products you have, were all of them brought to you by somebody else, or did you patent any of the products yourself? They were all brought to us by somebody else. So, like, for example, the hair snare, how that worked out was the woman held the patent, and we agreed to um, pay a royalty. Actually, we bought the patent from her. That was how we bought the patent. We owned it, but we paid her a royalty on our sales. And I think it was 2% was a royalty, was a typical royalty. Okay. My dad would just simply tally up the gross sales or the sales of the item per year and uh, do the 2% and send her a check. And uh, she, um, unfortunately for her, she died, I think it was about six or seven years after that production, but um, he just kept sending this check to her son then for the life of the patent. And the patent, I believe was 17 years, generally they're 17 years. so. And so all the other products too, like uh, you have a, a bait bucket. Was that yeah, something that somebody else patented and brought to you? No. Well, obviously bait bucket's been around a while and how the bait bucket business worked out. Explain, is- explain to people what a bait bucket is. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I guess I'm being from Florida. Everybody knows what a bait bucket is. But for example, if you go to a, um, if you want to go fishing and you typically want to fish with shrimp uh, in Florida, you go off the pier, so you'd go to the bait shop and you buy one or two dozen shrimp. Um, how are you going to transport those shrimp, their live shrimp, to your to the bridge or to your boat or what have you? So you would normally use a bucket, and you want a bucket that has a lid on it so the water doesn't come out of it, but it has a top that's easy to open. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. So wait, you were saying how you got into the injection molding. 
Yeah, how we get that's kind of a story on itself. Um, that's an interesting one. It, it started out with our hair snare. And remember, I told you back in 69 we made it. And we always made it through contract molding, which is common. So if somebody has a plastic part they need made for a product and they don't make a lot of it or what have you, it's, it's probably not economical for them to buy a, a single injection molding machine. And if they're not mechanically orientated or don't understand how they work, to actually run a machine like that. So they'll have a contract molder do it, where normally you would give it to a guy who has maybe a dozen machines or so in a shop or whatever, and uh, they'll hold your mold for you. So a typical mold for us back in the day was a four cavity mold. We make four of those hair snares at a time, and uh, it was a $25,000 mold. So you would have somebody hold that for you and they would make your parts. You'd call them up and say, I need 100,000 pieces. Say, okay, we'll have a tea in a month and you get your parts and that's that. And then if something happened where you didn't want them to mold your part anymore, as long as you're all square with the bills, you'd say, okay, look, I want my mold back and they'd ship it back to you. And that's that. Mm -hmm. So what happened to us was we would go through various molders for one reason or another, they go out of business or, but everything was fine uh, until I sent the mold to Chicago to have a friend of mine do it. And he was a good guy mm -hmm. and he did a bang up job on it for about three or four years. And then finally he sold his business to, <laughs> all I can describe, we'll keep it family friendly here, a very bad man. <laughs> ah. Yeah. And uh, this guy was like, uh, I like to describe him as, uh, there's a movie, a, a corny Hollywood movie called Other People's Money with Danny DeVito, if you've ever seen it. I'm familiar. And where it's a guy who, yeah. he, he takes over corporations and, and, and he promises the world and he just decimates them and takes all the money. Well, this guy who bought the fellow's business I was doing business with was that person in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he really was. And he bought a large company in Chicago that was uh, hanging by a thread. So he was doing a great job for three years. And I didn't know this guy was bad or good. I just knew that he was making my hair stare and always kept good on the price. So the new guy. Time, the new guy was. The new guy, yeah, the, the very bad man. <laughs> the, da the Danny DeVito bad man. Yeah, exactly. This guy. And his, he had a brother, too. They were just like this. And they have a long history. You can search them up. In any case, doing a fine job until one time I ordered 80,000 pieces or so, and he sent 14,000. Whoa. So I called up and said, what's going on? He says, oh, it's just, you know, the skillets and that, whatever, and the machine broke. And, you know, I don't know. So we'll get it to you in three weeks. Okay, fine. So nothing happens. And finally, it just wasn't going to happen. So I said, well, why don't you just give me the mold back and I'll find somebody else. And that's when he said, no, we really can't do that. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> it's my mold. I want it back. He says, well, I give it back to you for $5,000. And that's what really torqued me off. And uh, I decided to hire a lawyer and uh, got a lawyer involved. He was a nice guy. He worked with me. We went through some money. And uh, finally, it just proved to be unsuccessful to get that mold back. By then, we were ready to get it, and the, the fellow claimed, I was actually able to meet him. Um, I'm surprised I didn't get a fight with him, but I was actually actually able to meet him. Huh. He said the mold was gone, it's been salvaged uh, or scrapped, uh, this and that, so it's all gone. It's all the creditor's fault. It's always somebody else's fault, not his fault. So that's what got me into injection molding. So is that what made you, beyond injection molding, I mean, is that what made you say, Screw outsourcing. I'm going to do it all myself. Not necessarily. It, it wasn't, well, screw outsourcing to the point where I send all my tools and things like that to somebody else where you get held hostage for it. That's the bad part. When you send out critical tooling and what have you and somebody's holding it hostage, you got to be very careful because they can. You know how the old saying goes, possession's nine-tenths of the law. 
and I soon learned that when that fellow had my hair stare mold that it's not so easy. I just can't walk into his plant and walk out with it, even though it's it's legally mine. There's just no question about it. It's mine. It's yeah. theft. It's, it's a crime. And I, I told the lawyer, he says, why don't we just call the police, call the DA, whatever. And he just sat me down and says, they don't care. <laughs> it's a civil matter. They could care less. Yeah, mm. it's criminal. You could argue that, but they're not going to they're not going to touch this guy. You just you're wasting your time. Don't even waste another brain cell thinking about it. It's not going to happen. So that's why I decided we're going to get into the injection molding business. And uh, we bought our first machine, a 101 ton machine, uh, bought a single cavity mold and uh, a robot with it because it's not economical to have a person standing in front of a machine pulling a single part out every 30 seconds, especially if it's you know, a small part like that that's not worth a lot. And if you have two employees. Right. Bought a robot with it, but that's just half the, the battle. You know, everybody knows if you buy a robot, it doesn't do anything until you tell it exactly what to do. You have to program it. And so I designed a conveyor system alongside the machine that automatically stacks the product. And uh, I got it to the point where I can run it lights out manufacturing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, we can run it the entire weekend uh, with nobody there. And then all we have to do is just come in on a Monday the first thing in the morning, they just empty the trays, take some 20 minutes to put them in the boxes, nice and neat. And then the machine never stops. You just keep on going 24 seven. So, but that's what got us into injection molding. And I really, I like that. I like injection molding. Um, it's, it's just a neat industry where you can take plastic pellets and uh, turn on the machine and, and just start making money with them. You think that's a better field than metal? Well, metal components? Yes and no. For my business, it is. Because the way I see machining in the magazines I get is if you're going to go into production machining with small parts that aren't worth a lot of money, this is my opinion, I can't say for sure, but just simple parts, it, to me, it just doesn't seem economical to do them in the States. That's the kind of part that would be made overseas. Now, right. if you have machines like a Davenport and you're doing very precision parts, maybe small runs, uh, perhaps the money's there. But to get to that point, you have to have estimators, quoters. You have to. You know, I'll be, I would be spending all day long in the office quoting jobs, and perhaps maybe getting one job out of ten. Who knows? Uh huh. And then you have to have a setup man. You have to give them the drawings and, and this and that. Right. So, well, that's why you know, coming from our world, to just see you know you right you know on the shop floor with only two other employees, and then you saying, "Well, we make every single piece of this product." Or of all your products, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me that I found that very interesting. I'd think that it would be a rather daunting task. Well, except that the lint we haven't gotten to that. That we did make that until about 2003 in house, 2004. Then we finally had to outsource that, though. Okay. So we have a third party manufacture that because there's a lot of, again, it's a low cost item, and there's a lot of handwork into uh, taking it from the machine. Even though we had semi-automated machines to staple it and roll it, there's still a lot of handiwork to do that. And uh, as we know in, uh, in the States, it's just, that's the main thing why production goes overseas is labor rates. You already had a good foothold with the wholesalers and that's enabled you to... This, well, this, this business did the, the bait shop business. So what happened with the bait buckets is I actually bought the bait shop, the bait bucket business. So that came with the molds, the customer base, and what have you. And that's where that our, we got our footing in there. So you bought somebody else's business. Correct. But it, it fit us well because I like, like I said, going back to the injection molding, we were doing well at the hair snare. 
And I just, I like injection molding. Some, you know, some people, they like machining or they like doing this. For me, it's, it's injection molding. And uh, it's the challenge of it. You have to understand, you know, the pressures, the temperatures, the, the tonnages of the machines, the clamping, and, and how, to, um, how to adjust your, uh, uh, your settings in the machine to get the desired part. Well, what it seems to me is that you ha- somehow have a knack for getting other people's, you know, everybody, everybody we do business with, not everybody, but a lot of people, they're always like, if only I could get a product, that would right. be the best thing. So it seems like you have a knack for somehow falling into products or finding the right person to buy. Or do you have any any tips, any secret for that? Um, I don't know. I guess, like I said, with the bait shop business, I ran into the, you know, I, it was my neighbor next door and he wanted to sell. So I ran into him. But that, that's a tough one to say, uh, you know, other than I'd like to say that I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm an honest guy. Everybody knows me and uh, they know that they're going to do business with me. So you're saying you're saying that people know you. Yeah. And uh, I think I just ran into this bait shop thing. Uh, the bait business is a uh, because of the, the fellow I knew down the street. I used to interact with him. He was essentially my neighbor, just two, two doors down, two shops down. So you're a good networker. Yeah. I guess that helps out somewhat. Yep. Yeah. Well, if you had any tips for somebody who's saying, I'm looking for a product, I want to sell a product. I would say make your products because um, I know some other people who have done very well too. Um, and it doesn't take, you know, it, here's kind of a, a little bit of a tangent or going off, but there's a lot of press in, in politics. And I'm not going to delve into politics here, but there's a lot of pressing uh, talk about everybody needs a college education and everybody needs this and that. It, it's good to have a college education. If you have one, that's, that's fine. But I've seen, I've seen guys who have, don't have a college education they don't act like it, you know, they're not, they're not stupid, but they don't act like it, do very, very well. And and how they do well is that they make things. So one fellow I knew, he started up an injection molding business. He's very successful. And uh, he just started making his own molds, searching Amazon and searching eBay for parts that sell a lot. And he would make the molds for that and just start selling it. And it just starts snowballing from there. I think if you're going to go out and try to sell someone else's product, perhaps there's money to be made or you can do that also. But you have to remember, you're always going to be beholden to the person who's making that product. They're, you know, they might decide not to make it for you or sell it to you anymore or what have you. Whereas with injection molding, I'm starting out with pretty much the, the rawest or raw materials and plastic pellets. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I can make anything I want depending on the tonnage of my, of my machines and the, the complexity of the mold. So Right, but you fell into these patents and you never... You haven't actually invented one of these products you sell, no. have you? No, I haven't. <laughs> I wish I could say I was a, an inventor and all that. And I read about these people who invent all kinds of things. And I, um, I've had it. I've used that. I know people who do that too. I had a fellow who works here who, uh, who could care less about making a lot of money and all that. But um, he was always ingenious in making machines for our products. For when we used to make the lint snare here in house, he would. After about a week, he'd come up with a new design for one of our automated machines. I said, like, how the heck do you think of that? And he would just cobble stuff together and make it quite well. So uh, I don't think it necessarily takes a person who is good at inventing things to make a lot of money, too. Um, of course, if you have a novel idea, and like the weed whacker or things like that, there's there's a lot of money to be made. But um, you can still start. if As long as you can manufacture your own items, you can start with simple items and just go from there. 
And of course, the internet's made it a lot easier too now because back in the old days before the internet, I'm old enough to remember that, um, you had to go to trade shows to sell your items, essentially. Or remember the Thomas Register. Mm-hmm. If anybody knows the Thomas Register, Register that was the Encyclopedia Britannica of um, manufacturers. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> now it's a dinosaur because you just Google replaced it completely. But uh, nowadays you have eBay and Amazon and places like that. But uh, what happens with, with places like that too is the competition's intensely fierce. So if you can get to the point where you can manufacture an item for yourself, at a low enough cost, you can be successful and sell it on places like the Amazons and the Ebays and, and what have you. You don't have to be an inventor of a, of, of a new gadget or things like that. And plus, I've always learned this or always been taught that when you do hold a patent on an item, the patent's only worth the weight of the paper that it's on. And my father had to prove that three times. In other words, when we had the patent on the hair snare, he was ripped off blatantly, just blatant ripped off three times. It was just our hair snare, the exact design in a store. Mm -hmm. So you can't call the police on that. They don't care. It's a civil matter. You have to bring action. You have to pay a lawyer in front. There's no collect, you know, like these accident lawyers where we collect it. We'll do it all for free. No, you pay up front all the fees and you may or may not win the case. Chances are you will, but you still have to pay a significant amount to win that case. And then hopefully you'll get some of your legal money back. So um, just because you have a patent, too, uh, doesn't mean that you can just uh, rest easy, Yeah. make a product and just think, oh, nobody's going to copy it. They'll copy it. I guarantee it. <laughs> you're going to have to be ready to, uh, if it's a popular item and successful, you're going to have to be ready to defend it. Rick, this was really, really interesting. And okay, it, was, it was great to get to know you better. And I look forward to... Uh, Letting you know when the podcast comes out. If uh, if people want to find your products, is there something they can look for? Or um, yeah, you can just simply go to our website. It's very simple: www.omalley o m a l l e y dot com, and uh, it lists. This shows all our current products that we're making there, and uh, there's a contact page which I do. We do answer it, so you can just simply send an email from that contact page, and we can help you get in touch with the retailer or whoever that. Uh, sells our products. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.